I'm Chelsea Fairless. And today we are not recording at my home. This makes little difference to our podcast listeners, but I thought they should know that we are recording at your home today. Welcome. I wish I had greeted you in a ball gown like Brenda Dixon, like the welcome to my home video. Very nice. Well, we do have a studio audience member who is in their bathrobe. I can't see her, but Tatiana is somewhere behind me lounging. It's a little scary to do this with an audience. (laughs) I don't know how I feel about it. I mean, technically, it's three audience members because our dogs are also here, but we're used to them. Shall we get into the news of the week? It's been a crazy week because Gwyneth was vindicated, Trump was indicted, and we were all victimized by those Barbie memes. And I'm proud of us that we didn't participate in them. (laughs) Yeah, a couple of them were funny, but Jesus Christ. It also feels a tad premature to do a viral meme four months before the movie comes out. Yeah, I'm excited for the Barbie film, obviously. Love Barbie, love Margot Robbie, love our girl Hari Neff. But I do feel like I'm being ambushed with publicity for it. Ever since those Venice Beach photos, we have been inundated with this film in a way that we haven't in recent memory with other movies. And we're further perpetuating that by talking about it right now. And with that, shall we get into the second trailer? Yeah, I continue to be delighted with the tone of this Barbie film. I feel like it should be noted that Greta Gerwig is not only directing the film, but she wrote it, but co-wrote it with her partner, Noah Baumbach. So the man that brought us Marriage Story, I imagine also brought us the uh, revolutionary scene of Barbie standing out of her shoe and then her foot just remains in that Barbie shape. That was an incredible detail. It's so crazy because visually, this is so far from every other film that either of them have made. Like, how do you go from Greenberg to Barbie? Yeah, but if we're going to continue to live in this IP brain rot, like this idea where we have to make every video game, every board game, and every toy a movie, like, let's give it to people who are going to bring the thought and attention to make it look like something absolutely well it's very opulent looking especially for them like it's lavish like it's almost like busby berkeley level of spectacle in like every single scene i imagine that the wizard of oz was a big reference for them because in the trailer i don't know if you noticed this but barbie is seen one in a pink gingham dress which you know dorothy wears a blue one in the wizard of oz yes i got that connection thank you (laughs) thank you for that Right, but when she passes by the movie theater in the Corvette and she's waving to people, there's Wizard of Oz on the marquee, and then the character posters are the characters of Wizard of Oz. So perhaps Barbie Land is Oz, and it's like a reverse Wizard of Oz where she's escaping Oz to go to the real world. We know because of those infamous Venice Beach photos, that she makes it to the real world. I can see that. Well, also, this trailer is the first time we've ever heard dialogue from the film. And there's that one scene where Ken's like, Barbie, do you want to stay over? Right. It's obvious that neither of them know what sex is. And that reminded me a lot of Pleasantville and that kind of humor. Yeah, I was delighted by that because it feels like it's evoking when we would play with dolls as children and you would put your male and female doll or your dolls to sleep, but you weren't sure why they went and bed together exactly oh i just made my barbies fully scissor i don't know what you were doing (laughs) freak (laughs) you also get a sense of the sense of humor the sort of sexlessness of the barbie dolls with the if i weren't so injured i'd beach you off joke at the end of the trailer okay maybe went on for a little long it was a little long well this is exactly what we wanted right because when this was first announced i remember we were talking about how we wanted it to be like the brady bunch movies right that sense of humor a sort of a nod to the campiness of that era but not being satirical there is an innocence to it of fun that has been lacking in movies for a very long time i don't know if i needed the beach boys in the trailer though yeah like i get it she drives a convertible and she's gonna have fun 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 until her daddy takes the t-bird away but i think something contemporary would have been nicer here also if there was ever a time to bring back the movie soundtrack 
this would be it. Like, we deserve a soundtrack with a Nicki Minaj version of Barbie Girl. I think we have the potential to get something like that. I think Greta Gerwig has a really good sense of what this film should be tonally. And I think that it's going to be better than it has any right to be. Like, we've discussed the fact before, I think when the teaser trailer happened, I was referencing the social network. And I think it could be the social network where it's like, wait, Aaron Sorkin's directing a film about the formation of Facebook. Oh, wait, David Fincher is going to direct a script from Aaron Sorkin about the founding of Facebook. Wait, Trent Reznor is doing the score for this. So so when Nicki Minaj <laughs> is announced, it will be like that. Although Dua Lipa has to have a song, right? Because this poster rollout revealed that she's in the film playing a mermaid, which delights me. As someone that collects dolls and Barbies, can you not wait for the this merch line? Oh yeah, I haven't even thought about that. They have to make dolls to correspond with each of these characters, right? Even though they are playing Barbies from the past. But will Barbie have her original waist-to-hip ratio? Because that's something they've done away with. There's a lot of homages we've seen to Barbies of the past, so who knows? It's a real snake-eating-its-tail situation. In other Gen X filmmaker news... There's a new Wes Anderson film coming out. What is it called? Asteroid Asteroid City. City. It's a town called Asteroid City that is set in the 1960s. Or it's set in contemporary times (laughs) and everyone just happens to dress like it's the 60s. I think it actually legit is set in the 60s or I don't know, 70s. Who, Who can say? But there is a city called Asteroid city where no one can leave he's on some roswell bullshit this is his atomic age film clearly yeah when the trailer opened i thought jason schwartzman was justin thoreau when i saw this trailer the first thing i thought was like wow we've never seen tom hanks with a spray tan like this i feel like he had a pretty aggressive spray tan in those da vinci code films Mm, well he had a tan in castaway but that was a different kind of tan That's very true. I'm liking this latter-day Tom Hanks career choices, which seem just very hooey. It's like, I'm going to be the most out-of-control, questionable accent man in Elvis. He's made a bunch of films on Apple I will never watch. Yeah. And now he's in Wes Anderson films. I love when big Hollywood actors are like, my day as an A-list actor is done. I am now a character actor. I can't wait to see Scar jo play this Elizabeth Taylor type character. Like, that's why I'm seeing this movie. She looks amazing in a black wig. Yeah, she does. Also, it was inevitable that Maya Hawke would enter <laughs> into the Wes Anderson universe. Like, I'm surprised it didn't happen sooner. The Wes Anderson cinematic universe. Yeah, other returning actors. Part of the Wes Anderson acting troupe are Tilda Swift. Jeffrey Wright, Edward Norton, Adrian Brody. Allegedly, Margot Robbie's in this movie, too. I'm just looking at the IMDb cast list. Willem Dafoe, Matt Dillon, Hong Chow. I will fully admit I have not seen the last few Wes Anderson films. I didn't see The French Dispatch, but I'm caught up beyond that. Yeah, The French Dispatch just felt like the most Wes Anderson Wes Anderson had ever Wes Anderson. Well, they're all out of control. And to be (laughs) honest, like, I prefer the early ones. Like, I'd rather watch Rushmore. Not that I don't enjoy all of them when I see them. It's just, there was something nice about the fact that his earlier movies were a bit more lo-fi. They're still extremely stylized, obviously. But this looks like a painting. I think the Grand Budapest Hotel was the first time things started to more look like uh, an illustrated book. Yeah, it's a full storybook. But yeah, I think definitely an inflection point was The Life Aquatic, where it went from like, Ooh, I love this quirky aesthetic put into a contemporary film. Everything after that right, just became yeah. so aesthetically ruling. Like Moonrise Kingdom looked insane. <laughs> Also this week, there was a new teaser for our future favorite film, Maxine, which is the final installment of Ty West's horror trilogy, which includes X, Pearl, now this film about the porn industry in the 80s. And this cast looks insane. We knew that Mia Goth was the star, obviously. Because as we know, she's a star! Yeah, they announced a whole host of uh, cast for this film. It's going to be filming this month and come out, I think, later this year. So we've got Lily Collins, Kevin Bacon, Michelle Monaghan, Giancarlo Esposito, Halsey. I'm down for that. Wait, did you say Kevin Bacon? Because that's what I'm excited about. I feel like Kevin Bacon is finally getting back to his wild things roots. 
with this movie. Bobby Carnavale, like no one looks like they could work in the porn industry more than this man. And yes, funky tasting spunk has a lot to do with that. But I think it's really fun casting. Yeah, I'm so curious what the plot of this movie is about. And I wonder if Kevin Bacon is either a sleazy porn director or he's a cop. It's one or the other. (laughs) And perhaps both. I don't know. I'm going with sleazy porn director. I fucking hope so. Anyway, on to television. I see we have a call to play. Hi, Lauren and Chelsea. Long time fuck at first time caller. Um, I'm a little stoned. And I went to watch my favorite show, How I Met Your Father, and I realized we haven't talked about John Corbett being on the show that Kim Cattrall is an essential part of. Um, So we'd love to hear y'all chat about it, even if you don't play this message. All right. Bye. I love all of our fuckettes. We would be nowhere without you guys. But... I'm also deep in pre-production of a movie right now, and I foolishly took this job on because I was like, oh, I'll just watch this episode of How I Met Your Father to explain it to Chelsea. Chell, it is three episodes. I watched a third of a season of How I Met Your Father to be able to explain to you what the fuck John Corbett is doing on this show. (laughs) Okay, tell me. So he is basically Aiden... But if Aiden was a chef and the age gap was giving Carrie and Petrovsky. Okay. Creepy. So he's dating Hilary Duff, who is grown up. She is Kim Cattrall. I hate to admit this, but this is a safe space. I have watched my fair share of How I Met Your Mother. And the structure of that show is the character of Ted, now grown older, is explaining each episode how he met their mother. But they show the children and the older Ted is voiced by Bob Saget, who just got to go into a sound booth and record voiceover. So that's what Kim Cattrall is doing. No, she appears on fucking screen. I thought she was just, you know, sending a voice memo and collecting a big thing of cash. But no, she actually has to show up to this show. But is she just in the same setup? Or is she like in different scenes? She's in the same setup, but they use her almost to punctuate jokes, which is the other thing I need to get into. I know how hard it is to write a TV show and a movie, let alone how hard it is to get something made. But this is very, very bad writing, Chelsea. (laughs) Like there was a discussion a few weeks ago about the WGA saying that they would allow AI to potentially write scripts, but they would give screenwriters credit. And everyone, including myself, was like, you can't do that to us. Having watched How I Met Your Father, I revised that. I think AI, (laughs) we should allow AI to watch like a thousand hours of 90s sitcoms and then write multicams for people in the 2023s. This sounds like hell, which is why I've never been able to bring myself to watch this show. Hilary Duff meets him at some party. He's the chef. By the end of the episode, they kiss. They do acknowledge their significant age difference. Hilary Duff is my age. John Corbett was born in 1961. It would be like if I brought Henry Rollins to dinner. I mean, that would be incredible. I wish he would. So this is all leading up to the fact that I guess Hilary Duff's character doesn't know her father. Can you see where this is going, Chelsea? No, her father isn't Aiden. Well, you would hope not because they fuck all throughout the second episode. And like Aiden, he has a house upstate. So he takes her to her house upstate and he's like, oh yeah, I went to the original Lollapalooza in 1991 in Arizona. And I was like, wow, that's a really specific detail. And then it cuts back to her mother being like, I was at the first Lollapalooza in Arizona. And so she demands a photo from John Corbett of what he looked like in that moment. And the photo he has is with Hilary Duff's mother in the show. So she texts her mother and is like, is this my father? And for a second, I was like, this might be the greatest, most subversive television show in history. (laughs) It is not. He is not her father. He was on a celibacy kick, so he couldn't have been with her mother. But as he said, they did other stuff. They did hand stuff. Anyway, this whole experience made me realize that I really want Todd Solans to do a multicam sitcom. (laughs) I need a sitcom that's like happiness, but like on NBC. Yeah, I would love that. So anyway, that's what Aiden is doing on How I Met Your Mother and how John Corbett is dating Kim Cattrall on this show. Great. I can't wait to never watch it. (laughs) 
Speaking of better television offerings, did you watch Next in Fashion? I watched a handful of episodes because I had to watch a third of a season of How I Met Your Father, but I really enjoyed it. And I don't know if I'd been off fashion competition shows since the original Project Runway days, but I was like, oh, this is delightful. Well, did you watch the first season, which was Tan France and Alexa Chung? Of course I did not, Chelsea. Oh. I did. Who has the time for this? Oh, come on. What do you mean? First of all, that came out like a million years ago. Like it took them forever to do another season. All right. Well, when I'm done with this movie, I vow I will go back and I will watch all of Next in Fashion. But can I ask you a question? Sure. Do you feel like everyone on competition shows now are a little too nice compared to the early aughts? No, because those are the kind of reality shows I like. I like reality competition shows where people aren't trying to fuck each other over. Like, I also love Blown Away, the competitive glass blowing show on Netflix. There was a Bravo show about haircutting, and I thought that's what Blown Away was. No, no. It's about glass blowing. It's great. You should watch that also. But if you haven't seen Next in Fashion, imagine Project Runway with the biggest budget in the world. Like the winner of Next in Fashion gets $200,000. So I don't understand why every designer isn't applying for this. Like I get that being on reality TV is kind of lowbrow, but like you could do worse than this show. It's pretty good. And you get a full ass runway show with an audience. You could start a business. They do have a gigantic budget because every episode, at least the ones that I watched, have these unnecessary cold opens with Tan France and Gigi Hadid Mm -hmm. doing like kind of comedy bits. Yeah, that is a little weird. Although I generally think they're both good hosts. Like Tan France brings a warmth to the job that does kind of fulfill that Tim Gunn void. In the show, although some of his outfits are crimes against fashion, but that's like another thing entirely. Gigi, not as savvy on television as Alexa Chung, who had more of a journalism background, but she's so sweet. She's so delightful. I totally fell in love with her while watching the show and her outfits are insane. I've never seen a wardrobe budget like this for a reality competition show. Like she's wearing like $40,000 outfits. Well, that's, I assume, the power of Gigi just calling up designers and, and having them loan to her. But this is more what I meant about, do you feel like people are too nice? I agree with you about like people not fucking each other over, but I agree with you that Tan France is more of the Tim Gunn, but there's no Michael Kors or Nina Garcia to give that biting commentary about the outfits. Well, yeah, Michael Kors is completely irreplaceable and had the best reads of like anyone on Project Runway, always. That's the thing that I'm I'm missing from this show. And I do appreciate Tan's supremacy as the fashion correspondent for Netflix, but like, what are his credentials? Because as I was watching this, I went through Wikipedia to see his career. I'm obsessed with the time that he had his own fashion company that was geared towards uh, Mormon clothing because he was living in Utah at the time. The reality of the situation is that Queer Eye was cast through Instagram. Right. So they just found gay guys with significant social followings that could fulfill those roles. Tan didn't get this job because he has like a deep understanding of fashion (laughs) in the way that Tim Gunn does. The thing that makes OG Project Runway a perfect reality show is it was the perfect mix of casting someone that has a TV presence but also a deep knowledge of fashion. There are recurring guest judges. There's Jason Bolden, who is a celebrity stylist, who's like fine. Yeah. And then there's Gabriella Karifa Johnson from Vogue. You might remember her as the woman that Kanye bullied during the height of his insanity. And she adds a lot to this show. Like, she gives the best feedback to the designers. She cracks good jokes. I wish there was more of her. Well, hopefully they bring her back for the the third season. Can we just dive in for a moment? And if you'll allow this to be a little bit of a therapy session for me, I get such anxiety watching competition shows, I realize. Like, when I hear these challenges, like, hey, you're going to be working with plants this episode, my mind instantly goes blank because I place myself in that situation. Yeah. And that probably makes sense because 
because when I did get to Parsons at the height of Project Runway and saw the other people that wanted to be fashion designers, I was like, oh, this isn't for me. My only notes about Next in Fashion are that designers should receive feedback based on a preliminary sketch before they actually make the clothes because I think that would make everyone's work stronger. Also, they have the most arbitrary bullshit time constraints. There was a challenge where they literally had to go through a pile of thrift store clothes and make a outfit in four hours. Like, why? Why not give them a day? Why not give them two days? I always think about that with reality shows and shows like The Biggest Loser or any home design show where it's like they're stuck there for six months compared to a food competition show or a singing show where you can do it in real time. In order to show the progress, you have to film for literally six months. Yeah. So maybe they were like, you know what? We've been here too long. Make a swimsuit in four hours. I understand that the reason for that is that they don't want to pay for additional shoot dates. Like this is an obscenely expensive show to produce. Yeah. And on every episode, someone, I don't know who, produces a whole fashion show. I know. With like a crazy ass set. They always set up the room differently. It's so insane the amount of money that goes into making this show. I can't imagine how much Gigi is making. You almost want a reality show about the production of making Next in Fashion. Yeah. Like, who are those people in the audience? I assume they're on the crew. They couldn't have sent a notice for background actors. One thing that we haven't discussed is the talent. Our friend James was a contestant on the show, which was cool. I love that Donatella Versace loved his look. It was a good look. I thought so too. But he got eliminated unjustly too soon from one of those like group challenges where someone always gets fucked over. It gives me college anxiety where it's like, I don't want to be in a group. But the guy that I did like the most did win. So I feel like they did pick the correct person. Well, let's see what he does with this $200,000. I hope that next year people with existing small brands apply for this because the designer that won the first year, Minju Kim, was already an established designer. She already like, you'd see her clothes at like opening ceremony or like that Nordstrom like space place. Right. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. That upstairs, yeah, that looks like an art gallery. The Nordstrom space for like experimental designers. I don't know. She was already around and then just got a shitload of money from Next in Fashion. So why not? Like if you're a good designer, you should be able to withstand the shame of being on a reality television show. Look at Christian Siriano. He's laughing all the way to the bank. You're right. In 20 seasons of Project Runway, <laughs> was one. I'm just saying if you're good and you can sew, why not? And you've got a TV personality, do it. On to Yellow Jackets. Yeah, so we're two episodes into Yellow Jackets, I suppose. We're three episodes in. Did you not watch the third? It came out last night. Oh, then no. It's fine. <laughs> you don't, like there was no major revelations. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, guys, I will be talking about the first two episodes. But what I was going to say is if you have not watched this and don't want to be spoiled a little bit, I guess skip ahead. Yeah, diving into the second season, I was like, oh, I don't remember which teen corresponds to which adult. Like, (laughs) it took two episodes, but now I was like, oh, okay, I got it. Neither does Tat. Like, she cannot (laughs) remember the fact that young Juliette Lewis is blonde. It's, like, too much for her or something. I do see that they made that actress's roots go a little bit deeper, but it's like, how long are they going to be in this forest? Is she just going to fully have black hair by the time they get out? Yeah, it seems like her roots would be worse by now. The guy that she hangs out with, Kevin, does not have a beard at all after months of being there. Yeah, I never noticed that. I think they chose to do that to distinguish him from the other guy, the teacher who Christina Ricci uh, amputated his leg. Right. I have never seen myself more in a character than Christina Ricci, and I don't (laughs) know how to feel about that. (laughs) (sighs) She gets shit done. As do I, but like I too know from hours of watching police interrogations that the only thing you say to them is, I want a lawyer. 
I know Melanie Linsky is such a fuck up as is her husband like they are so bad at covering up this murder it's insane also I love this show and it was always kind of going off the rails but it's really going off the rails like the part where Melanie Linsky and her husband fuck in the studio of her dead boyfriend it's like what and then Melanie Linsky's like basically like oh I want to be like swingers who is like that this show is five shows in one I knew the Yellow Jackets is basically lost for girls. Speaking of going off the rails, it has gone to a crazy supernatural place. Yeah, I wanted some Donner Party cannibalism shit. I don't need this supernatural stuff. Like with Lost and really with any show with a super high concept like Westworld, I'm now starting to get concerned of like, are we going to be able to pull this off? Or are we just putting a bunch of random storylines? Because at once it is this character study, almost Big Little Lies-esque show with Melanie Linsky's storyline with her current husband. We've got the supernatural shit that's happening in the forest, which I'm here for. But then, as you said, we get Donner Party shit. So they're cannibals? Okay, so the first season teased the cannibalism throughout. And now I realize I think I prefer the suggestion of cannibalism (laughs) to the reality of cannibalism. Like, I feel like I've seen too much. You know, we're all feeling like the the one-legged teacher who seems horrified (laughs) that these children have feasted on their friend who uh, was dead for two months. They took off her Elsa Peretti (laughs) Tiffany Hart necklace and then they ate the bitch because supernatural forces went through the forest and and threw a snowbed on the fire so she was perfectly roasted (laughs) (laughs) the second season of yellow jacket so far i find not only dark in tone but at many times just dark on screen because i literally cannot see what's going on at night (laughs) no i know i have to turn off like all the lights in my house to be able to watch this show so we're pretty sure they eat the teacher right they've got to eat the teacher he might starve to death and then they'll eat what's left of him i don't know And we haven't seen the adult version of him which leads me to believe they ate him homophobia Also, I remember a while back we were talking about Tori Amos and you said, like, when are we going to get the cornflake girl needle drop? And we got it. I know. We also get another Tori Amos song in the third episode, which you haven't seen. Do we get more of Elijah Wood and Christina Ricci's Reddit board parasocial relationship? Because I'm here for that. Yeah, we do. We get more of that. So... Melanie Linsky's narc daughter is the one that she's pregnant with in the forest, right? Yes. Okay. All right. That daughter needs to back off. (laughs) She could have been eaten just like that. I'm so intrigued for when they show them reintegrating into life, especially because they all were cannibals. Like, how do you de-escalate the cannibalism? Yeah, I loved the next day scene where they all kind of woke up and wandered out and had to face the fact that they all just like ate someone in the middle of the night. Can you imagine? Like Christina Ricci, I have read the accounts and watched videos of Donner Party stuff and what happened in the days after them eating the first people and they basically couldn't look at each other. Yeah. As you wouldn't be able to. They get over it pretty fast. They're like, oh, let's throw a baby shower. (laughs) Women got a women. (laughs) Even when they're in the middle of nowhere. Also, there's a really incredible scene where young Christina Ricci recites a scene from Steel Magnolias. You'll you'll see it. I hope that other people are watching this show because when I watch it, other than not being able to see shit at night in the night scenes. I'm like, who is this show for if not just for Chelsea and myself? Yes, it's for us and other people that appreciate the great actors of the 90s. Christina Ricci, Melanie Linsky. Like, these are our queens. And we're going to get Lauren Ambrose at some point this season. So she's going to have to have, like, third-degree burns. That's going to be super campy. Right, and the scars. Yeah, scarring from the burns. Showtime has been canceling a lot of stuff like Z-Way, so I hope we're not, like, left on a cliffhanger in season two and they're like, sorry, we canceled Yellow Jackets. It seems like people are watching it, though. I imagine we'll be back later in the season to recap all the other people they eat in season two. Um, moving on to, well, from baby showers to a pretty baby. 
Guys, I'm trying here with the transitions. <laughs> As you know, sometimes harder than others. Yes, Pretty Baby being the Brooke Shields documentary that just came out on Hulu. And between this and the Pamela Anderson documentary, I'm thinking that being a decade-defining sex symbol is actually more of a curse. 110%. Like, these people's <laughs> lives suck. Like, fully suck. Yeah, between these two docs, it's made me appreciate that I was never beautiful. And that's not to, like, shit on my looks, but to have that kind of beauty seems harrowing. I agree. Her story is incredible. All of the archival footage is incredible. But there's something a little muddled about it, I think. There are so many interviews with like various feminist scholars that are talking about how fucked up it is to sexualize young women and the effects that that has on them. Then Brooke Shields basically is like, I wasn't uncomfortable. I wanted to do that movie. I wanted to do that photo shoot. It was artistic. And in many instances it was, but it's also artistry that's predicated on the beauty of this very young girl. I was intrigued how they were going to handle it, especially given the title of the documentary is the controversial Louis Mal film that she was in in the 70s called Pretty Baby. Husband of Candace Bergen, because everything ties back to Sex in the City, of course. Of course. I'm kind of shocked that Brooke Shields was never on Sex in the City. Well, she was the star of Lipstick Jungle, which was a Candace Bushnell book that was then adapted for television. Yes, in the post-Sex in the City television landscape, which rudely is not covered in this documentary. I know. I was kind of pissed about that. She doesn't cancel her mother she doesn't cancel the director she doesn't cancel the film what she seems the most annoyed about is how that movie opened the door for journalists for basically the rest of her life to just ask very inappropriate questions yeah and you see footage of a lot of these very uncomfortable interviews and it's kind of disturbing to watch because Brooke Shields as a child and as a teenager like there is a blankness to her like, it is dark. I don't know if it's that she just had no personality or that she was just completely disassociating so that she could adapt to whatever adult situation she was in. I think it's a mixture of the two. I think what the documentary highlights is that she could be this perfect, and I'm sorry to use this phrase, but like baby slut vessel because she was raised super religious. She was so disconnected from her sexuality. It's not until she gets to college that she realizes she can have an opinion, which was so dark. It really was. I do believe Karina Longworth read that Polly Platt, who wrote Pretty Baby, was using the script as a metaphor for how women were treated in Hollywood. Oh, absolutely. However, I do not think that Louis Malle, the film's director, had the same satirical feelings. There are a lot of films that comment on the fact that young girls are sexualized, but in many instances, they end up sexualizing the girl just because of the medium of film, right? Like, even in this documentary, we're seeing all of these, like, kind of fucked up, vaguely sexual photos of this little girl. Yeah, there's a part of the documentary, which I didn't even know about, where after Pretty Baby came out, and after maybe even Blue Lagoon, there was a photographer who had taken photos of her, her being Brooke Shields, when she was nine or 10. And I'm gonna tell you, I don't quite understand the concept because the way it is explained is like, oh, it's children in a context of like doing a childlike thing and then them dressed up as adults doing... Oh, you're talking about the Gary Gross photos. Right. The Gary Gross photos where it's just like, I don't know, they showed both and she looks pretty sexual in both of them. And he tried to sell them after she became famous and Brooke Shields sued him. Brooke and her mother sued him and lost. She's not even retroactively upset about the fact that these photos were taken. Like she was like, I was very comfortable. I was happy to do the shoot. It's the fact that he tried to sell them and then she had to go to court. That's what traumatized her ultimately. Well, the Gary Gross photos also speak to what I'm saying about works of art that comment on the exploitation of children that end up exploiting them because Richard Prince took those photos, reappropriated them, exhibited them. And it's obviously a critique about what American morality something like that yeah. like they're disturbing images he's not putting them in a gallery because they're chill and because they're hot like it's supposed to be disturbing 
But because they're now in a museum, randos are seeing them who may be, I don't know, turned on by them, whatever. They don't exactly understand the context and probably may take it the wrong way. I'm in the process of making an erotic thriller, and I know there's going to be stuff that people would consider objectionable. I know what I'm trying to say with it, but while watching this back, and I've, I've seen Pretty Baby, but like back in college, I have not seen it recently, but it's like, I don't think I would ever make a movie like that. I really can't think of a good reason to put a child even under the context of acting in situations like that, for the exact reason that like audiences just aren't mature enough not to see that, but to understand the contextual metaphoric ideas that I think that movie was trying to represent, at least on the Polly Platt screenwriting side of things. Well, that's just a movie that there's good things about it. There's bad things about it. Definitely couldn't be made today. No one's trying to make movies like that today. I mean, I never saw that documentary Cuties, but I know that there was a whole controversy when that was released because of the over sexualization of the posters or something. But I don't think that had anything to do with the film itself. No, it didn't actually. (laughs) To skip ahead a little bit, Brooke Shields' immediate post-college career doing commercials in Japan and, like, gym membership infomercials is like the end sequence of Tar. (laughs) (laughs) So true. The thing I was most intrigued by is Brooke Shields' lifelong friendship with Laura Linney. Yes. And I really need a Beaches-style film about that relationship over time because how crazy must it have been for Brooke to be the one that pops off immediately. But at the end of the day, Laura is the one with the prestigious career. I had seen Laura Linney appear in the trailer. I did not realize they were friends since literally being children. And Laura Linney has memories of hiding in bedrooms with Brooke Shields as a child because Brooke's mother would come home drunk and they had to hide from her. It just reminded me of uh, Jenny and Forrest at the beginning of Forrest Gump. I was like, ugh. Yeah. Is now a good time to mention I worked for Brooke Shields? Oh, yeah. What was that again? (laughs) Tell me about this. When I was a kid, was 11 or 12, uh, don't come for Brooke Shields and child labor laws with this story. But my mom, you know, in the days before WeWork and uh, The Wing, Chelsea, my mom just rented an office space in this building. And Brooke Shields' assistants also rented a space. And they, this was the time of Suddenly Susan, they needed someone to put Brooke's press clippings together, which in watching this documentary, I realized that they're probably the press clippings she stole from her mother's office and hid in Andre Agassi's office (laughs) when she broke up with her mother as her manager. Right. And yeah, I put all her press clippings together in these books, and I'm told she still has them to this day. Incredible story. And she invited me to her Christmas dinner. I got invited to a taping of Suddenly Susan. It's the only time I've seen a multicam show tape. And then I got invited months later to her Christmas dinner. And there's a photo of her hugging me, which we'll put in the show notes. (laughs) You did send this to me. It is so adorable. But you look like practically the same age as you do now. It's actually scary. (laughs) I don't. You look like you've aged five years since you were putting together Brooke Shields's uh, press clippings. Aww. So what else did I get from this documentary? Oh, we should mention that it's directed by the same person that directed Miss Americana, the Taylor Swift documentary. All throughout this documentary, I just kept thinking about the line in Antihero, everyone is a sexy baby. Very relevant to this movie. Andre Agassi seems like a chill guy to be married to. Yeah, love that. He has a meltdown after she does her friend's appearance for the infamous Super Bowl episode where she plays a crazy stalker of Joey Tribbiani. And he broke all of his Wimbledon trophies. What a loser. Can you imagine being that unhinged? Yeah, her friend Allie Wentworth, who was interviewed in the documentary, did a an interview with Howard Stern that I was watching, and she made the point that it's like, you can't just go to Wimbledon and are like, sorry, I broke this trophy. Can I have another one? So all of his trophies are just fucked. So crazy. Also, can we talk about the Calvin Klein ads? Because... Every time I see, not the print ads, but the video ads, I'm like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life. Like, I don't even think it's that sexual because it's just, they're bizarre. Well, especially when Brooke explains the concept of like, no, it's the DNA of denim. Oh God, yeah. To be fair, all the Calvin Klein ads throughout the 80s make 
no sense. Wasn't just that campaign. Yes, I'm always reminded of that perfume ad where it begins with a voiceover. It's like, she was a fever from which I would never recover from. And then it's just a woman slapping another woman. (laughs) Okay, that actually sounds exactly like the commercial. We should drop the audio of that here. She was a fever from which I will never recover. (laughs) I don't know how I forgot this. If we can move forward to the Tom Cruise of it all. Sure. I think we don't give enough credits in society that Brooke Shields really brought the idea of postpartum depression to the forefront. I feel like I never knew this concept before she wrote her book. I didn't know what it was before I saw her on Oprah talking about it. Wow, Tom Cruise has done such a good job just by doing insane stunts in the Mission Impossible film that we... We, I'll just say me, completely forgot about this whole incident in pop culture where he goes on Matt Lauer while promoting War of the Worlds and just says that Brooke Shields is wrong and basically weak for taking antidepressants. It's like, babe, I'm not the one trying to administer a stress test in the Union Square subway station. (laughs) And also, years later, your wife at the time that you're making these statements will escape under the cover of night and you will never see your child again. Yeah, he was a real prick for that one. But Tom Cruise did all teach us the meaning of the word (laughs) glitch. Oh, yeah. So true. I did see that Brooke Shields was like, you know, but I am sad that I'm no longer on Tom Cruise's infamous Christmas cake list anymore. What, she was on it before? I guess. He's like, no nut cake for you. It's a coconut chocolate bundt cake. And how I know this, and I feel like I've talked about this on the podcast before, it's a bakery in Woodland Hills near my dad's office. Like, he can pick us up one if you would like, Chell. Let's do it. It does feel like in today's society, if you've been in entertainment for a long time, there's only one thing left to do, and that's to become a lifestyle brand, which is where we leave this documentary is Brooke has created something? For like menopausal women or something? Sure. Sorry, I sound like a men's rights activist, (laughs) but like actually I think she did. Start a website for menopausal women. I thought the most interesting part of the documentary, at least the second part, was her daughters talking to her and how they've only ever seen Pretty Baby through TikTok edits, which is dark in and of itself because without that, and I guess the glorification of that aesthetic, they would have never seen this film. We should note that Pretty Baby is an iconic fashion film. Like that's why I first saw it when I was in college. But, like, it's not fair of them to judge it without seeing it. Yeah, fuck them. (laughs) I'm just saying. Like, look, they raise some good points, obviously. I'm not saying that children should have to be in roles like that, but it happened. It was big in Europe, as uh, Brooke notes throughout. American audiences just didn't understand it, which, yeah, I believe. But you see the divide between Gen Z and their Gen X parents because her children are basically badgering her that is like you had no consent to be in that film and she's like bitch why are you posting like bikini photos on your instagram and she's like because i can brooks face when her daughters explain to her that the euphoria actors are actually all in their 20s playing teenagers as if Brooke Shields did not understand that well-known concept that most high school shows star very old people who are not teenagers. Well, I came away from this really liking Brooke Shields as a person. Not to define her by her looks, but she's looking great. She's gorgeous. It's almost like she looks the best now and then when she was like five. It's like one or the other. I did find the end beat of the documentary bizarre, which is like, I get what they're trying to do, but that montage of barely legal TikTok thoughts into the montage of Janelle Monae and Lizzo and Billie Eilish. Oh, that was offensive editing. Laverne Cox, Tig Notaro, Lena Waithe. I had to write them all down as if the time when Brooke Shields was young, you didn't have Angela Davis, Fran Leibowitz, and Gloria Steinem on like regular nightly television. Janelle Monet, there's nothing like not traditionally hot about her. They found video footage of like Billie Eilish in her frumpiest outfit as if she's not also extremely hot right. and sexualized much in the same way as Brooke Shields. But they also negate any footage of a counterculture that was speaking out against the exploitation of Brooke Shields 
of beauty of children at the time that Brooke Shields was young. One thing it did do a good job of illustrating is how celebrity has changed since then, where there used to be like a hundred celebrities and now there's a million celebrities. And I loved the influencers that they picked to illustrate this. (laughs) And it was like James Charles at the Met Gala. Yeah, she was singularly famous in a way that we have not had. I can't think of another example of someone who was just world famous starting as a child and it just sustained. Well, Jodie Foster. Where's that documentary? It'll never happen. I live for a Jodie Foster doc personally. This has become so trite to say at this point, but like I do hope she gets sucked up into like the Mike White or Ryan Murphy universe. Like I would love to see her in a fun role. She's obviously shown that she's good at comedy. They really went ham emphasizing how much physical comedy she did in Suddenly Susan, though. She was like, guys, I can't just keep falling. You would think she was like Charlie Chaplin or something. My only other context for Brooke Shields, other than my uh, my time working for her, was those early Kathy Griffin Bravo specials where she blew up her friendship with Brooke Shields by discussing Brooke Shields' wedding and how her mother was at the wedding. What, did she, like, drunkenly fall into the wedding cake or something? Not exactly that. I would have to go back. Sadly, Andy Cohen has erased any uh, existence of Kathy Griffin's time on the Bravo channel, so... So rude. But yeah, if you haven't watched the documentary, I, I think you should. For no other reason than the weird anecdote about how Michael Jackson said that he and Brooke Shields were dating on live television, just, you know, for shits and giggles. It makes sense, though. They're both, like, developmentally stunted. Yeah, and they both were singularly famous in the same way. Anywho, shall we move on to some Kardashian news? I know, let's play the theme. Kardashianaholics Anonymous. This is a case for the FBI. I feel like it was last week when we were discussing how there was the teaser for the third season of the Kardashians that we couldn't be bothered with. And then they leveled at our feet the Courtney and Trav wedding special, which I heard someone believe that it was going to be a TV series like, you know, Courtney and Kim take the Hamptons. But I'm pretty sure it's just a special, right? Yeah, it's just a two hour television event. Exactly what I want a year after them getting married. I know they got married in May of last year. So at this point, just skip it like Astro World. <laughs> I'm still excited to watch it, but I just would be shocked if there was something that I haven't seen. Because I've already digested this wedding via Instagram stories from everyone in their family and so many paparazzi photos and Instagram photos. And something tells me that Courtney has a large hand in editing this. And I don't know if I need Courtney and Trav's perspective on their love life. Like, I think that's what's missing a lot from the Kardashians, as opposed to keeping up with the Kardashians, is like an outside producer force to make the show more interesting. No, it's true. When I watched this, I realized that the Dolce & Gabbana caftan that Kris Jenner wears is basically identical to this very famous caftan from Schitt's Creek that Moira Rose wears to the Crows premiere. Like, right. it's actually the same outfit. Do you know what I would definitely watch an hour special of? Is Dolce & Gabbana recreating all their archival looks for the Kardashians? That's what I honestly, I'd watch five hours of. Same. Um, and other Kardashian news... I saw that you put this in the doc, but I don't know what the fuck this is. So because your wife and I have the same TikTok sickness, what has been coming up on my feed is people catching a guy with a handwritten sign that says Kim Kardashian ruined my life dot com. And I watched a video that attempted to explain this. It's basically this guy created the original Kimoji and went to Chris and Kim and pitched it to them. And they were like, we love this. They were going to go into business together. Called him up, said, do you have the trademark for Kimoji? And they were, he was like, oh no, I didn't do that. And they were like, don't worry, we will. And basically built out the website based on his idea. He sued them. Kim countersued. His lawyer was like, oh, they countersued you for an amount of money you'll never be able to pay. So just drop your lawsuit. 
dropped the lawsuit, had to pay Kim and Chris's lawyer's fees, which were in the hundreds of thousands, and it bankrupted him. Now he has a sign that says Kim Kardashian ruined my life.com. Although now he has started an Indiegogo. What the fuck is that? Like a GoFundMe? Yeah, it's like a crowdsourcing thing. And by the way, when I click on Kim Kardashian ruined my life.com, no website comes up. So I find this a little suspect. Yeah. But it is just a further example of what already is this predominant internet conversation that the Kardashians are over. Which, guys, they'll never be over. They just will recess a little bit from our daily pop culture lives. But they'll never be gone. No. They should take a break and then come back, so we miss them, but that'll never happen. They laid low for a bit of this year. Oh, but I'm talking about, like, years. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which they will never do. I'm sure people who've stayed this long to hear us talk about the Kardashians are yelling at their phones or in their cars being like, talk about Timothy and Kylie. Yes, this is something that popped up on De Moi this week. People have been arguing about the validity of this because it's a pretty hooey pairing. It also comes from Dumois. Can you really trust it? But I don't know. I've been hearing about this for a little bit. So it leads me to believe probably true. Yeah, I would not be surprised if it was true. I think it's hard for people to put celebrities together that they don't normally see together. But there's like a whole world where celebrities hang out with each other and we have no idea about this. You can imagine the celebrities who have hooked up with each other. It also would explain Kylie's recent fashion glow up because she can't be outdressed by this like straight twink. And she's been deleting her photos of her and Travis Scott while Travis Scott has been like leaving thirsty comments on her photos. So that's always when they try to get you back is when you're fully over them and have moved on. This family is so crazy. (laughs) I love it though. I saw on TikTok the McDonald's worker catching Tristan and Chloe in the car together picking up McDonald's. I also saw something where... I think it was on Dumois that the editors of the Kardashians are being told to pivot to a Tristan redemption storyline. They can't do that to us again. (laughs) We already did that. That was like last season. I know. Like his first redemption arc was interrupted by the fact that he impregnated another woman while Chloe and him were pregnant. If this is true, I feel like I understand Chloe's impulse of like needing to write a situation. But sometimes you just, it's never going to correct itself. You just have to leave it in the past. There's also no way that he's not going to cheat on her immediately. I don't understand why he wants back in with Chloe. If you can be single and co-parent with her and fuck around, which you obviously enjoy doing, why? Why get back in a monogamous relationship? I don't know. Does he need it for his career? I don't think he needs it for his career, no. It's beyond hope if she's not seeing this guy for the person that he is. They continue to give us what we don't want from the Kardashians as a show versus what was so great about keeping up with the Kardashians. Like, I'll even now take the terrible prank (laughs) storylines that were filler. It makes, the Kardashians make me long for the storylines I even hated from keeping up. Yeah, it's a weird vibe over there. I think we're getting Scott back next season and it's like, give me another Todd Crane storyline. I long for those simple days. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see. But God, I hope that shit isn't true about Chloe and Tristan. I guess we've sort of ended on a downer. Yeah. Sometimes it's like that, guys. Thank you for listening. I gotta go off and watch this third episode of Yellow Jackets, followed by season one of Next in Fashion. So I gotta go. We'll see you next week. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.